0: starting us up, sorry. No worries. There we go. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm Sammy, not your run-of-the-mill podcast host, Yunnan. Today I welcome Director Paul Kemp to discuss his running documentary, Nike's Big Bet, which you can enjoy on Peacock in the U.S. and CBC Gem in Canada. Remarkable documentaries are not like sports. There aren't always clear winners and clear losers. Here's the background. In 2001, Nike established the Oregon Project as a program to develop elite runners and, of course, put Americans back on top. Running coach Alberto Salazar was in charge of the program and given free reign to employ his unorthodox tactics to deliver results. In 2019, despite never failing a drug test, and his athletes never testing positive, he received a four-year doping ban from all coaching activities, and the project immediately collapsed. So, what happened? Did Salazar's just-do-it attitude and questionable practices push the limits of human performance and technology too far? And really, what is fair, even fair play, in sports? Malcolm Gladwell, who appears in this doc, a Big Bet, he says at one point, It's so typical of the dysfunction of track and field that we will bring down the house on someone operating at the margins. You're going to bring down the hammer on Alberto Salazar on something that is so complicated that I can't even follow half the arguments against Alberto Salazar. Ooh, oh boy. Okay. Shall we get into all this and more with director Paul Kemp, who's an actual, literal show runner, show runner. You'll know what I mean in just a moment. Actually, one of the people, I don't know if you saw it or not, but I did talk to Patricia for Shut Him Down, uh, The Rise of Jordan Peterson. That, obviously, you were involved in that. yeah. Uh-huh. It's kind of mirrors like similar, I guess, in a weird way with, uh, with Alberto Salazar just because it's this really controversial figure and nobody quite knows what box to put him in. And like and everyone has this opinion, right? Like you, it's like a grenade. You just throw it into the room and it just goes off.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, let let her rip. I'm good. Whatever. All right. Yeah.
0: So you're all ready to talk about an individual who is not the run of the mill running coach. That's right. <laughs> I certainly know a lot about
1: this subject. <laughs>
0: So I want to get some background on you first, Paul, uh, because to use a like popular TV term, you are like literally a show runner. Uh, how long have you been involved in running?
1: Uh, well, in actual running, I've been running since I was a college student. Well, actually, since I was a grade seven student. Uh, and then I, got, I went to university as a runner um on a track scholarship in the late 80s early 90s I was a kind of national class runner uh and then I gave it up got into film and other things and then took it up as a kind of master's runner and got to the Boston Marathon ran the New York City Marathon twice uh became sort of a national level uh, 40 and over runner for quite a few years and now I just run every morning for fun and uh but when you're talking about show running and TV, yeah, I've been a showrunner for for uh, about 20 years too. So yeah. that's my job is sort of uh, executive producing, producing, writing and directing. That's my, that's my gig. That's how I make a living.
0: Yeah. So that's why I find it kind of a funny term because it's like, it's literally encompasses what you do, like both as a runner and both as like a, a filmmaker. Um, you mentioned like filming kind of came into your life a little bit later, like, what sparked your interest in filmmaking? How did you end up going in that direction?
1: Well, I I had no inclination towards film whatsoever. I got into student politics in university. I was I took a liberal arts degree in politics and economics and uh, geography of all things. And I I've been an I've been a curious person my whole life. I guess um, I'm always learning I'm taking I'm still taking courses like right now I'm taking two university courses like I constantly am reading and learning Uh, so when I finished university I was I I took a job I was working for a lobbying group doing some work for them and then I got I got asked to be in a documentary in 1994 which looked at uh, how Canada was doing economically and politically across the country and they hired like seven young people and I got cast uh, I don't know how many people they interviewed those a lot. And I got cast, did that for four months, traveling the country. And then the guy, the guy who owned the company, I don't know, he took a liking to me and he said, Hey, wouldn't you, you want to come in and try and write this thing? Uh, one thing led to another. And like four years later, I was, the uh, I was, fully producing at his company. And then 12, 11 years later, I ran the company for him for, for 12 years. Um, well done. So that's how I got into it. I, I kind of came in knowing, knowing nothing about television and walked out. I basically learned all the good, bad and ugly of the business, um, which is, which is fun. But I ran into directors who didn't know how to direct. I ran into writers who didn't know how to write, <laughs> um, which is good in in some ways, but in some ways it was frustrating at the time. But I, I, I think that helped me, you know, find my voice as a writer and director and producer. And I think, you know, doing that, by the time it was like sort of 2004, 2005, I was doing series. And for the next 15, 16 years now, I've been, I've probably directed... I don't know, over 100 TV shows um, and 25 films, maybe uh, something like that, uh, where sometimes I'm not working full time on all those shows. Sometimes I'm coming in as a fixer in the writing. Uh, sometimes I'm managing the shows. Mm-hmm. So I'll just go out and be there. To, a lot of what I find a showrunner's job is. And for people who don't know what a showrunner is, it's a person, person who's kind of like the creative linchpin between the money and the producer and the broadcaster and the teams that are are built around that that that's built around. And I found as a showrunner, the key thing to do is to really, if you're doing it with a series, is to get those first two episodes right. And that's really hard. It's like you're doing a 13 part series and the first two episodes are really hard to get. But once you know, I'll go in the field, I'll be shooting those, I'll be writing them. I'll be working with the editors, trying to get the format down, the style down, and then once once that's locked in, then you bring in other directors, writers, producers, uh, field producers um, to do the work. Uh, so that's that's sort of what I do.
0: I I want to extend that train of thought you were just on because I'm curious about pace. I know in running, an objective is to like pace yourself, right, so that you can control yeah. your speed. And yet, pace is also an objective in terms of filmmaking, right, especially for documentaries. Right. You want to pace the documentary so the audience can follow the story, uh, understand the central characters, understand the central issues. Right. So this might be cheap psychology, but like in terms of pace, has running like made you a better filmmaker? I don't know. It's
1: definitely calms me down if I run in the morning. I think clearer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's it or just being curious and open. I, I, I think I'm pretty open minded. I did one of those personality tests, with five personalities and like my open mindedness is pretty high so I'm I'm kind of convinced like if an editor thinks there's a better way to do the opening, I'm not locked into thinking my way's the only way. Mm-hmm. Um sometimes I'm right and sometimes I I've, I've made the right call, but sometimes you got to be open to like okay, maybe we should try this or um one of the biggest things I find in films I if you don't lock somebody in, in that first five minutes, particularly on Netflix, like my stuff's on Netflix now, Peacock, Sky, UK, uh, CBC is my biggest clients in Canada. Mm-hmm. If you don't lock the, the audience in, in five minutes, they're gone, they're gonna go do something else. So when you talk about pace, sometimes I think you have to run really hard like out of the blocks. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta bring the audience in and then slow it down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You have to almost tell them what they're about to see, in a very bold way so that they're so enticed but you don't you're just hinting at all that stuff and then you slow it down and let the story go uh you've watched a couple of my films i know you've mm-hmm. watched the rise of jordan peterson that mm-hmm. he's big bet both of them start with a very intriguing opening which if you watch it you're like okay i don't know what, what i'm watching here but uh, i better hang in here because this is going to get interesting
0: mm-hmm.
1: so i feel like that's a huge challenge and i think a lot of the films i watch it film festivals. I I do a lot of film festivals, documentary festivals. Um, and I find a lot of them are just, they take the audience for granted, uh, for that first five or eight minutes. And if you're stuck in a theater, you're going to probably ride that out. Mm -hmm. But if you're on, if you're competing for that Netflix spot or you're competing for a television spot on a series, you, you need to really engage the audience up front, then let the pace go and then find the pace of the show after that. Um, so that's something I've learned. I don't know if I'm sure there's other filmmakers out there that totally disagree with me.
0: Um, <laughs> it's the but, way it goes. Yeah, and I, I think I'm right
1: about this. I think, you know, my, my experience of selling shows mm-hmm. um, and getting commissions has been based on that that theory, and I, I, I'm sticking with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the two documentaries you mentioned, uh, Nike's Big Bet and Shut 'Em Down, The Rise of Jordan Peterson, some of the criticism I saw uh, for both of them was you didn't take necessarily an interesting track, which is like you weren't openly critical from the get-go of who these people were. You want to get to know the individuals. And Nike's big bet is obviously Alberto Salazar, the, the running coach. But it's interesting because that's another attack that a lot of people or a lot of filmmakers take is like we're doing an anti or takedown piece or like, uh, you know what I mean? This person, wh- whoever the subject matter is for the documentary, is evil and we've decided he's wrong or she's wrong. You know what I mean? And so they set the tone early on And that also kind of limits the audience you can get as well.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a balance at the front, too. Like, for instance, on Nike's Big Bet, I'm doing a story about the greatest running coach in history, arguably, Alberto Salazar. But your average person doesn't know who Alberto Salazar is. Mm -hmm. I do, because anyone who's in running or reads, you know, Runner's World and all, they'll probably have come across his name and go, well, okay. But my goal in that show was to place that guy in the first eight to 10 minutes of the show as this character that's bigger than life. Uh, I had to do that before I could really delve into the controversy over him. He gets busted for drugs in 2019 or allegedly gets busted for drugs. Mm -hmm. There's never been, that's what the film's about was Mm -hmm. did he do it, you know? Um, So laying that film out was really interesting and I had to make a lot of different choices up front and I also had to place his his place in the in the company Nike like he was their basically their second um branded athlete behind Prefontaine Steve Prefontaine who some of your audience might remember as one of the greatest runners they did a movie with Tom Cruise called Prefontaine Mm -hmm. and Without Limits with Jared Leto I think was in that film um those two films sort of brought to lore about this 24 year old guy who dies in 1974 but he was nike's first superstar right after that alberto salazar was the next guy so i had to tell those stories very quickly off the top so people understood how big nike is like we know it's the it sells 65 percent of all running shoes in the world today like it's a massive corporation Mm -hmm. but it started as a little little company and this character was Uh, Salzar was one of the like he was one of the key guys he to the New York City marathon three times and that launches him into the stratosphere. So I needed the audience to understand that before they could get there. Um, So that was key. Jordan Peterson is a different character. I mean, he's a very controversial professor love him or hate him boy does he ignite people on the on different political (laughs) spectrums so we came in like how do we make this guy more intriguing well we had to put him into the place of being probably one of the most impactful professors uh, in the world um he's got massive he's got 4 million followers on on youtube but i again there's a lot of people who didn't never had never heard of him so we had to again when we wrote the opening Mm -hmm. uh, we really worked on that to to intrigue the audience to come in and and ideally, if you get them in the, in the, in the tents, so to speak, then they, uh, they're they willing to go. And then that film, uh, and bo- actually both of those films, we really cut down the middle on those films. Um, I wanted people to feel uneasy about what they are watching. Like, who is this guy? Who is this guy really? Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I think in both films, we did a really, I think C- this, the CBC cuts and uh, we were getting feedback like crazy on all both those films um, have been that it did a good job of making you question your presumptions about drugs and sport for Salazar mm-hmm. or, uh, the way a professor is, is branded by the media. And he came, so both of them make you think, and we didn't get a lot of negative feedback from either side. It was sometimes it was like my, my biggest criticism on the Nike's big bet was, oh, you didn't interview enough women. Um. The story was about a bunch of guys in the eighties and nineties, right? Like, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, so I got, I got, well, couldn't there have been a woman who spoke to that? Yeah, I guess so. But they didn't, they weren't heavily involved. And I did interview, uh, uh, two of his athletes. So, um, female athletes. So those are the kind of criticisms you sometimes get, but it's drawing that line and again, get, getting back to your question. Yeah. Like I, I don't want the audience to know where it's going. Mm -hmm. i want them to think it's going one way and sometimes surprising them and making them think so that when they turn it off they go oh and that's not gotcha gotcha um films like that i think i don't know they do okay i i I know some of them rank well um you know like obviously michael moore has made a -hmm. career of taking an idea and going with it um and sometimes pushing the truth on those things and not letting people on the other side have their voice. And I'm not a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of letting people, because I think it's a nuanced world and I don't think we can just say it's this or that. And uh, I I try and, I try and carve down the middle and maybe my shows would sell better if I just picked one side, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I do.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that because it's reminiscent of um, the last dance, the Netflix Uh, Michael Mm -hmm. Jordan and the Bulls documentary. A large takeaway for many viewers was that Jordan is, quote-unquote, not a nice guy, which is kind of like a weird takeaway in a culture that cautions nice guys finish last, right? And Alberto Salazar also faces similar criticism, or even charges, I guess, that he's, quote-unquote, not a very nice guy. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons all the the coaching association, Safe Sport, which is, uh, you know, dealing with abusive coaching now all these groups have turned against the guy uh the u.s anti-doping agency i don't you know i think part of it was his personality he's not he can be a very aggressive he's in hyper hyper successful because of what he does but that rubs people the wrong way and and you know a lot of people say he has a win at all costs mentality to, to everything he does um and uh, you know a lot of people don't like that as a sports
0: athlete I I kind of celebrate it in some ways and I've always loved
1: that about sports it's like I like to see the guys on the edge I like to do it now did Salazar push it too far yeah like I mean I, I show this in the film like yeah he pushed way too far mm-hmm. did you know for instance Lance Armstrong go too far well obviously mm-hmm. but he was also part of a culture where everyone else was cheating so are you cheating when everyone else cheats well yeah you are, but you know mm-hmm. that's where the debate comes salazar was actually on he wasn't pulling the lance armstrong he was just on this side of the line he <laughs> was just if you were allowed you know one gram of testosterone in your body uh you were breaking the rules with one gram he was getting 0.99 like i mean he's that kind of guy mm-hmm. uh it's it's not cheating but is it ethical? And I wanted the audience to really feel that when they are watching it going, is this what we want from fair play? Is this what we like? I don't know. Like, I mean, he had so many medalists, so many national champions. I mean, it's crazy what he's done. And a lot of people who've left this program have not allowed, uh, stayed at the level that they were when, when, since, he's, since his banning. It's been interesting to watch.
0: An example of what you're talking about, and can you share the the moment? Because I found it really fascinating of this kind of ethical uh, gray area debate of winning uh, versus losing versus following the rules is one of the runners, uh, Galen Rupp, he was in the Rio Marathon. He got a cap from like a baseball cap from uh, one of the hydration stations. Can you explain this situation? Because that rule (laughs) is clearly like there's no rule there. So he didn't really, you know what I mean? So explain it, and then we can kind of get into it a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was when I, I'm glad you liked that scene, because that was, I want, I really kept, you know, even though the Olympic footage is very expensive, uh, I thought that that story exemplified Salazar perfectly. Yeah. So here he is. We've got this guy. He's a second-time marathoner. He's made the Olympic team. He's America's top distance runner. But can he get a medal? So that, everyone's watching, going, can this guy actually get a medal? Like in his second marathon, it's a very hot day, and he goes into the into the race. And Salazar, who's his coach, decides, "Hey, how do we keep him cool during the day?" So they, we know that he did an ice vest prior to the race. That's sort of well known that people can do that. They'll wear an ice vest to cool down their system so that during the first four or five miles, it takes longer for you to overheat. Mm-hmm. So. But, what he did was at each ice station at each, uh, like if people ever watch races, they'll see the guys grabbing bottles, uh, for water, like hydration stations, mm-hmm. he put hats on each one of them packed with ice packs inside of the hat. <laughs> and <laughs> now there's no rule against it. It was weird. No one's ever tried it. And I remember watching it live. I'm watching it live. And even the announcers are going, did he just throw his hat off? So, right before he arrives at the one station, he throws the other one down, goes through <laughs> the, puts on one which has a cooling device inside of it and it keeps going.
0: And brilliant.
1: And at the end of the race, he ends up third and gets a medal for mm-hmm. America uh, at the Rio Olympics in his second marathon against arguably two of the greatest marathoners of all time. D- did that push him over the limit? We don't know, but it might have you know, saved him 45 seconds in the marathon to feel a bit better. So his body was cooling down a little bit. Um, you know, But that, it was a great story. And I, I just still, to this day, people talk about it. It's almost like in the lore of running, it'll always be there. So I had to tell that story because it, it exemplified what Salazar, the lengths in which Salazar will go to, <laughs> to, to advantage his athletes.
0: Yeah. And it, it's like we said, like, there's no, there's no quote unquote rule. So there might be unspoken rules. Baseball has a number of unspoken rules that you quote-unquote have to operate by. Football and basketball have unspoken rules. Um, this might be one for, for running, but at the same time, because nothing's written down, there's no quote-unquote legality. Like It's like a, almost like a tax loophole in a sense. You know what I mean? So you can kind of do it, and it's quote-unquote legal. And then, then, like you said, the issue then becomes this ethical gray area of like, is this what it takes to win?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they do. I mean, there is yeah, like, I I agree with you, the unwritten rules of sport are fascinating. It's like in hockey, you don't, you don't hit Gretzky, right? Like, I mean, there was a rule. You just didn't hit Gretzky. You hit Gretzky, you take a punch to the face. Right. So (laughs) uh, this is kind of different. There's another rule though. That's interesting. Like like running's fascinating in that uh, like in the American, one of Salazar's older athletes who actually won the Olympic 10,000 meters she sat on the girl behind her she didn't take the lead one second of the race until she sprinted by her with about 150 meters left (laughs) Um, and it's kind of in most running there's sort of an uh, you know an ethical I don't know if it's an ethical debate but you usually take a lead for somebody else if there's two of you or three of you you'll each take a lead Mm -hmm. to break the wind or to like take some of the pain away so the other people can follow. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people will just wait and do it. Like either, you know, in that case, most people agree, like just do whatever you have to to win. Like if it means that you don't ever take a lead and you sit in third place until you have to sprint and you outkick kick everybody, so be it. Um, but where it gets dicey is, okay, well, should I take this supplement to give me this benefit? Should I take... Uh, and it, I, again, this, every athlete who's been running, and I, I did this sort of stuff too. Like I would take um, beetroot juice and it's known as beetroot juice. Actually, there is some evidence that it'll give you a little bit. If, if your stomach, you don't get explosive diarrhea while you're running. <laughs> it'll actually help you yeah. about 1%. And athletes will do this stuff. They'll take these beet shots, which are just nitrates. Uh, there's a nitrate in it. And it gradually, it just allows you to get a little bit of extra oxygen uptake before you start to hit your pain threshold, like to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Every runner I know takes that stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's it's legal. It's it's just a food product, yeah. but it's, you know, taking a condensed, and, and if you don't practice it in practice, your stomach will explode during the race. So, <laughs> you know, you, these are the kind of fun stuff about yeah about running but every sport has that stuff I mean people were taking Sudafed before hockey games I know for years mm-hmm. um it's all legal it's over the counter but like I don't know people were all jittery and there were guys were getting heart palpitations because they were taking this stuff but uh I mean that's the nature of sport people will try and find a limit um, I mean, we knew that in golf when people were using Balls that were um, tightly round they had more dimples on the balls, mm-hmm. and then, and then finally the sport figures it out and goes, okay, we have to we have to regulate that. We have to regulate the number of balls, how much pressure you can put on it, mm-hmm. this, the club speed, or the, sort of the uh, the band on the on the on the club, the size of the club head, all those sort of things. Those things came in so that you're cre- creating a, a fair playing field, and I think that that's what's important in sport is a fair playing field. But inside of that playing field, you yeah, know, I don't know. Like, it's that's where it gets dicey. It's like, where, where is it okay to just play on the edges of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, because one of the themes that runs through the entire documentary isn't just like you, you said, like fair play and like the ethics of sports. It's also kind of unpacking this culture of winning. Obviously, because you were talking about Nike on one hand, and Nike only wants to promote winners, right? <laughs> they don't like, like to sign the bottom feet as the guy who comes last in the race, right? That's generally not how the Nike kind of thing goes. But at the same time, winning is like a magic trick. Because if you do it a number of times, whether you're Michael Jordan or Tom Brady or uh, any like sort of long-distance runner, if you do it a number of times, it's a magic trick, and people want to know how you pulled it off right? And the idea of wanting to know how you pulled it off is so that you can distill it down to a formula. What are the five steps? Well, do I have to drink beet juice or whatever it is? What are the five things I have to do to get to this level or to do these things? You know what I mean? It's almost like, um, in, in a weird sort of way, we want like people like Alberto, Alberto Salazar to kind of like do the research, find everything, distill it down, and so then we can then just incorporate it without necessarily doing the work. Is that accurate, I guess? I think so.
1: I I think Nike, um, let's, let's be honest, like Nike waits until those, they identify those, those athletes are already the best when they're approaching them. Like they're not, they're not finding, they're not in a developmental program. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have over the years supported some developmental programs and they support the high school guys, but they wait till after university, Mm -hmm. when it comes to running, they see who's the best and they poach those people and they offer them sometimes not even the greatest contracts, in running, at least they'll give them a, a contract, but people want to wear Nike because they get to go to the campus, they get to use the track, they get support getting into the track meets, the biggest track meets. Nike supports, is the biggest supporter of track and field in the world. It's not even close. Um, so they do all that stuff. So you, you want Nike on your feed. They have the best gear. They've got these new shoes, the Vaporfly running shoes that have, everyone's breaking world records. Like we haven't seen world like national world records like this we've never had such a bout of them in um in the last two and a half years since they this shoe came out nike's ahead of the game all the other shoe companies are chasing them um so people want to be there even if it's um a little bit less money although now that nike has shown its cards on this stuff other companies are are racing in there and trying to also approach those athletes like andre in canada here andre de Grasse is just the national superstar now mm-hmm. and he's incredible and puma paid him after 2016 i think they paid him 12 million dollars for a young kid uh and i know i heard the number that they're like it's a massive number that they're going to try and top them up on and uh they're really putting money behind the sport of track and field now which in my view is great i think nike was the first there but i hope the others like i hope adidas and, and saucony and and hoka and all these other companies come in big time puma's been just throwing tons of money reeboks getting back in the game mm-hmm. so i think this is good um so nike even though they, yes they have done a win at all costs they are, they're also paying um <laughs> they're getting they're getting kind of slammed about this because i don't know if you've heard about the stories of uh well mary kane story which is in my documentary mm-hmm. them supporting her and then you know allegations that Salazar pushed her too hard over her weight. Um, that Nike turned a blind eye to her complaints about the program. And then we have other athletes, tons of female athletes are saying, Well, they never supported me during my pregnancy. And as soon as I got pregnant, they were all supportive at first. And then as soon as I didn't race, they did you know, they scrapped my contract or didn't pay me my. My fees because I didn't hit my running because I was pregnant. Like you know, obviously there's those issues. So they're doing a the mop up plan. Uh, Nike's Nike's trying to clean up their image on that side of things right now. I um, mean, like hopefully they get to they get there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, again, like Salazar, I have a love hate relationship with Nike. I wear their shoes. I think they're amazing, but they sometimes do things that corporations do, and they act kind of belligerently. Um, they sometimes act like bullies, mm-hmm. and they pay their way to doing that. So it can be kind of, you know, kind of, une- it's an uneasy relationship with that company for most runners, I
0: think. Picking up on that thread, because there's a number of people in the documentary from athletes to sports writers, but one individual that stands out is Malcolm Gladwell, and he seems to, I'm i am kind of putting words in his mouth, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he seems to view uh, Coach Salazar less as like a running coach and almost more like someone who functions like a cult leader? Like he's trying to unpack and trying to understand the motivations of this coach and how he got here and who he is. Yeah, I don't
1: think Malcolm thinks of him as a cult leader. What I think is, is that he appreciates what Salazar's trying to do. Like what... What Malcolm's been obsessed with is the idea of the human limits. And he thinks that Salazar it probably is the coach that best exemplifies Mm -hmm. any human on Earth who's tried to find the limits. And so when he talks about it, there's a scene in the film where he talks about Salazar as a a young kid. He, He wants to be the best runner as a high school kid in North America. And he is basically. And so he has a fever of 103 or 104. His parents, they like get to sleep and it's snowing outside and he sneaks out of the window, (laughs)
0: like
1: shivering, goes for a five mile run in the freezing cold and comes back and sneaks back into bed. And that story is a pretty famous story. (laughs) But like, that's the kind of character we're dealing with. If you're dealing with that character, Mm -hmm. what else is he (laughs) going to do? Yeah. the mentality and like he literally twice in his life was given last rites after a race they thought he was dead the foul 10k is a race he just wins he classes out they thought he was dead and they resuscitate him and he goes on and still has this incredible running career uh it was incredible but by 1984 he was he was the best runner in the world from 79 to 83 by 84 he was already burning out because he had just killed himself his adrenal system was messed up his body was breaking down you know you can only do that stuff for so long but he at the same time he is he became the best runner in the world he broke the world record in the marathon he won boston he won new york three times like i mean these are things he had the american record in the 5k and the 10k i think i I gotta check that actually but he was like he was like, an unbelievable competitor. And then he goes into sport, gets hired by Nike, who thinks the same way he does. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and creates what's called the Nike Organ Project, and they become the most winning track club in American history. I mean, it's it's incredible story, actually. Yeah, uh, both yeah. of
0: And his goal, too, I like that you underscored it in the documentary, his real focus was to get quote-unquote American running back on track. Uh, This was that period after where I think a lot of people know or have seen like on the news and stuff, a lot of Kenyans and other African uh, runners were winning like Boston Marathon and kind of famous marathons like that. And so Americans were kind of like getting embarrassed in their home country more or less. So he wanted to get them back on track. And so again, there's also this kind of like, uh, representative pressure, I guess, right? Like, there's a, there's a lot of pressure coming in from different things. Obviously, in sport, you want to win because there's a winner and there's a loser. But there's also, like, you know, when you're representing your country and stuff in, a, in a, the Olympics, again, that's an extra level. It's not just now a race. It's, it's that representation as well. So to do all that, you really needed somebody with a strong personality and a strong corporation like Nike. So it's kind of like it was a solid marriage in a way. Oh, for
1: sure. And like, you got to remember like 1988 to 2000, Nike was like, uh, sorry, American running was like, distance running was terrible. Like it really was, uh, we had, they had some okay milers and, and shorter distance guys, but the marathon, I believe it was in 2000. They, the best guy in America, they they only qualified one runner to the marathon at the Olympics Mm -hmm. and the standards were not that hard. Uh, well, I mean, hard for your average Joe, but for international athletes, like to give you an idea, now like the U.S. today would probably have twenty-five athletes who have the standard, or twenty to twenty-five athletes. They they could only qualify one in two thousand. And Salazar so is looking at this, going like, "What the heck?" Like I was the number one guy in the world for three years. These Kenyans and Ethiopians and Eritreans and ugandans are just destroying us like what can we do and you know to his credit he's created a culture that a lot of running groups have followed and now the americans like i wouldn't say they're the best of the world but they're up there they're getting guys they've got like galen rupp has been on the podium a couple of times in the olympics um they've got a a couple of other marathoners down there They're, they're pretty good um and they've created this this culture in america which has been positive i think um now, not all those teams follow Salazar's <laughs> <laughs> modus operandi, as they say, <laughs> and they do it through different ways. And some people would say better ways. But um, at the end of the day, I think it's been uh, it, he's been great for the sport in igniting that fire in American running. And I think that that's that's really cool. And not just American, it's happening in Canada, too. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh and the running groups up here have really did, like all over Canada have, have gotten better. We're we're qualifying really good runners. We have a couple, we had a guy who came second at the Olympics in the 10K. And he's in one of the running groups that Salazar is responsible for. He's mm-hmm. in the Bowerman track club. Mm-hmm. Um his name's Mohamed. He's from St. Catharines, small town boy here. His family moved here when he was one year old one-year-old from Somalia and now he's number two in the world in the 10k and he's amazing because of this so um you know it's 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 good good stuff's happened
0: is that good stuff part of the reason why uh, like there's a lot of interest internationally for this like we said the the initial idea was to kind of get American running back on track and a lot of the documentary focuses on that but you got some, like, international financing. You're getting, like, international markets, like, loving this documentary and like, I think, uh, Sky in the UK, broadcasting it. The, this might be an obvious question, but, like, because this documentary is a lot, very much American-centric, what, what's fueling all the international interest in the documentary?
1: Well, I, th- I think you have to realize that Salazar, because he won New York, it was broadcast all over the world in, eighty, like, 80 to 83. It was, like, those, those people... Older people kind of remember him. His influence as a coach is internationally known. So I went out in like late to, he got banned in October first, two thousand nineteen. And I started pitching it in November. And I thought, oh, I wonder if this will sell. And like immediately Germany and England bought on. Like it was I go, What? Like, how is this happening? Mm. Well, I mean, he coached Mo Farah, who was the number one sports man in in uh the UK in 2012 to 2014, I think he won like Sportsman of the Year three times. Like, so, and that's his coach. So you gotta realize like he was well known internationally. Um, so part of that was I think I, I've sold 82 countries now. I think we're maybe up to 85. I don't know, I gotta check with my distributor, mm-hmm. but it's doing very well internationally. Uh CBC bought it because we had a couple of athletes who were in the program over the years. Um Yeah, so it's done well, but he's, he's, you know, he's kind of like, you know, Roger Federer or like, you know, there's certain athletes that transcend borders and I think he's one of those guys. And I think the other thing I had going for me is that the Tokyo Olympics got (laughs) pushed back to 2021. Mm -hmm. And everyone was looking for big sports stories leading up to the Olympics. um, And that helped. Uh, I got a lot of sales right before the Olympics. This, this show uh, played all over the place i Germany and France did national broadcasts um, on the 20th and 21st of July and the Olympics started on the 23rd of July so
0: well and the
1: doc did really well over in both markets and then National Geographic picked it up Amazon picked it up in Australia and New Zealand so yeah it's done, it's done and Peacock picked it up in the United States which is uh, the NBC station because again they had the rights to the Olympics so mm-hmm. I think They wanted to make sure that athletes, I mean, uh, sports fans were also finding it. So Mm. we got a huge number of comments on the film right before the Olympics. Uh, Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, Alberto Salazar is obviously not in the documentary. Was that like kind of like a, I guess, side stitch? Is that the running term to like the story that you wanted to tell? Because like, did that impact how the direction that you want to take the documentary in?
1: Yes. Uh, of course, like if he if he was in the film, I would have had a total, made a totally different film. And actually I was talking to the ESPN guys and they had watched it. I've, I've talked to the top two guys there. Um, they were at Hot Dogs this year and they really enjoyed the film. And they said like, look, if you had had Salazar, this one might've been a go for us internationally mm-hmm. um, for 30 for 30 or whatever. Uh, but they said, you know, we need people who are gonna tell us a, uh, a glimpse of their life Or something that we don't know you know uh and and if you watch 30 for 30 that's what they do but salazar you got to realize was in the middle of his arbitration with the appeal court the the court of appeal for sport in switzerland so he wasn't he when i was filming this he didn't know if he was going to get let off or if his appeal was going to be heard. and his i had contacted him several times i know he's reading my emails because i (laughs) I would get phone calls from his friends and like, um, and I know we watched the sizzle reel. He did all that. I had had sent him things and I said, okay, I'm going to give you a drop dead time. And then his lawyer called me. We talked off the record a few times. And bottom line is they didn't want him seeing something that could jeopardize his court case. And if the film came out before they had announced the court case, he was, out so anyway it turns out he was out anyway he didn't win his court case that's just come out in recent months since Mm -hmm. since the film it was actually a couple months after the film released um but yeah i would love to talk to him i still want to chat to him actually um i don't know how he's doing like i imagine he's not doing well i mean he's been he's lost his career he's he's you know like been thrown to the scrap heap a little bit Of track although he's back in 2023 so we'll see (laughs) we'll see if Nike picks him up and if Nike brings them back I don't know if they will with all this negative um, press about him Mm -hmm. but it's still as my film I think shows it's not clear that he broke any rules and I think he's got a good case I don't think he should be gone I think he should be back
0: Yeah, there's also the other aspect of, uh, I mentioned like winning is a magic trick. And I noticed too, like with a lot of sports, uh, specifically stuff like the NBA or like Tom Brady, for example, people like uh, when people win. But there's there's this weird line of like winning, quote unquote, too much. You're winning all the time. And I've never understood that because that's the whole point. Like, if you're playing a sports, like, and you're going to keep score, you're going to have, like, a finish line, then you should try to win, (laughs) right? And if Tom Brady walks away with six Super Bowls or seven Super, whatever he ends up retiring with, then it's like he was a good winner. Jordan walked away with six rings, right? So um, I never understood the criticism of, like, winning too much. But I think this is also kind of contributing to that, that kind of resentment that, like, Alberto Salazar and his uh, runners were quote unquote winning too much. Oh, for sure. Ah, uh, I don't know about that. I think
1: they were they the feeling was that they were winning by skirting the rules of the system more than anything. I don't think people like Galen Rupp, still the greatest runner, like distance runner in American history. There's no little doubt. Like he I mean he didn't win the Olympic gold. Well he hasn't yet he might have a shot. 2024 for the olympic marathon i mean he's he's up there he came second at chicago just a couple weeks ago like he's a he's an amazing runner um who's up there is he the best i don't know but you know we've the america had a winner billy mills won in 1964 like i mean you could argue he was better but i don't think so if you look at all like Rupp won 10 national championships he's made like i mean he's had an incredible career and he's an amazing runner um so i don't think people begrudge the winning so much as the feeling that the winning comes from a bad place um like we all they all celebrated Lance Armstrong. i i remember people like it was so obvious <laughs> when everybody else was drugged. Like I, I remember talking to my friends who just couldn't believe that there might be drugs in sport, and I was like, "Are you like serious?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: like,
1: and then it comes out is that every person was on it. Now they're they, the testing is so much better, and they they've got these uh, they're called uh, passports. You, Biological passports you have to take a test early in your career when you're a junior athlete, and then sort of tests your limits of where you are mm-hmm. on a natural, and they didn't have those before. But it's, so it's harder to get away with like massive doping. You can probably micro dope now still. Um, and there's some theories that Salazar was involved with that, but I never saw any evidence of that. But there's definitely um ways to push the limits. And they're they're saying sprinters are all. Like there's a there's a legal limit, and all the sprinters in the world are just below that legal limit. They're passing all the tests, getting tested all the time. But are they cheating? I've heard those stories over and over again. I'd like somebody to find the uh, find the chemist to uh, blow the whistle on that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you you touched upon it in the documentary, and I've heard the the controversy too for the 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 Nike Vaporflies, right? These are shoes that people have like. Uh, I think it was in your documentary. It says it gives the runners a 4% advantage over people who are not wearing the the Nike shoes. The idea that, like, yeah, okay, obviously you can kind of test for doping, and like you said, there's a biological passport and these kind of things. But then it's something as simple as, like, having Nike-designed shoes that might somehow enhance or give you a little bit of speed or energy or whatever it may be, just some sort of edge. Then, like, it kind of starts to reset the conversation again. Like, there's no, like... "Quote unquote," clear way to like define like all the rules and make all the precedents and like everything to make it like, a "quote unquote," level playing field. It's just the way that it is. It constantly evolves.
1: Well, the shoe, the shoe thing is I I I make this point very clear in the film. Like the shoes, Nike came up with this new in 2016. Came up with this new shoe that totally changed the game. Like they put these huge heels. People are probably seeing them once they're walking outside. People are wearing these huge. Uh, Nike shoes with the big, thick foam. They're like 40 millimeters thick, which is huge. But, uh, runners used to wear shoes that were as small and thin as possible. But then Nike said, well, I don't know if that's right. And their scientists proved that they could um, make people run slightly faster and more efficiently with these shoes. And everyone uh, now agrees that they were completely right about their science. The problem was that Nike didn't let everyone know in 2016 about the shoes. (laughs) So the prototypes were being worn by all of Nike's athletes. So there is an argument that in 2016, Nike, basically there, if you were wearing a Nike shoe, you were advantaged and probably had a better shot at winning the Olympic gold medal in anything where those shoes were, were being worn. Now everyone agrees with that, but did they break the rules? Um, Sorry. Yeah, did they break the rules or not? Well, they say they followed all of World Athletics rules, and I, I don't know. There's, it, there's a debate there, uh, but definitely certain athletes were not like were at a disadvantage, and that kept going until 2020, till the other shoe companies started devo- developing uh, new shoes to match them. So again, the times have dropped. We like it's well known now that the Olympic, like uh, the world record, is 201. 38, I think, for the marathon, two hours, one minute, 38, um, in a legal race, uh, uh, the guy did break two, uh, Elliot you did break two hours in a, in a, uh, sort of, they ran with people blocking the wind for him and they mm-hmm. didn't drug test that, uh, who knows? And it was perfectly, they found the perfect day to do that. But let's say it's 201 38 before these shoes, the record was around 203 30. So it's about two minutes and everyone agrees like almost every scientist agrees that these for the top runners who are highly efficient runners it's about two minutes per marathon and one minute per half marathon and that if you look at this at all the results everything's faster so if you're wearing the old shoes now you're at a huge disadvantage <laughs> What's the difference between that and what Salazar was trying to do with uh, you know giving these guys like you know, an L-carnitine, which is just an amino acid injection, right? Like Mm -hmm. legal, it's a legal product, but he was doing it and it's like, okay, is that a little sketchy? I don't know. Like, which is more egregious? I mean, getting two to 3% or, you know, pushing the limit by point, like z- like zero 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 one of a percent. I don't know. It's uh, it's it's interesting debate. And that's it's why I thought the film was so, such a fun film to do. It's like I was I was struggling with those things and I wanted the audience to struggle with it and go, "Oh yeah, you
0: know." Yeah. And, and, you know, and so where can you, you mentioned already the audience can struggle with it on uh Peacock, uh CBC Gem? Those are the two in North America, right? Those are the two locations?
1: Yeah, yeah. Sky UK, it's streaming in Sky UK. It's on ZDF Germany, Arte France, Um, Amazon in the UK and Australia. National Geographic has it streaming, I think, in Belgium and Holland. I don't know. I'd have to look it all up. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, that's basically, I think I, I've got the big markets. I don't know where your audience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's
0: weird because with the podcast, it just goes internationally. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you never know. That's uh, why I,
1: I, I snit those, but uh, yeah. yeah, like CBC gem's done really well. It's a shorter cut though. I did uh, a 44 minute cut instead of the feature doc. Uh, mm.
0: Peacock has the longer, longer. version. In yeah. Peacock's
1: case. got the longer version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's right.
0: So, so we've reached the yeah. finish line. Uh, your yeah. next project? Yeah, I, was, I only had a couple of running puns. I did pretty good, I thought. But we've reached the finish line. So your next project is called Going Native. Can you explain a little bit about that?
1: Oh, that's a series I've been doing. I'm a I was the showrunner for season one of Going Native, uh, and we're in season two. It's a, a big issue in Canada is uh, the Indigenous uh, people, the first, we call them first Nations people here. Uh, they uh, how they've been treated in Canadian history. Um, there's a lot of negativity in that space about like what's called residential schools, all these sort of big issues and they're really important issues to Canada. And what I've been, what I was approached by APTN to do was come up with a series that would um, take a brighter look at the Indigenous experience. So we've been working with a very lighthearted, he's a humorist, guy named Drew Hayden Taylor, he's a really funny guy. Uh, we go around North America, actually, um, and we tell the ways that the weird and wacky, and so, sometimes deep and profound, ways that Indigenous people are changing the world uh, in in good ways. Mm-hmm. And so we tell these stories. as a very positive sh- show. It's really funny. Like, well, we were out with the uh, these like ten. Uh, kids uh, they were Mi- Mi'kmaq uh, youth out on the Nova Scotia coast and they've started up a surf club um, nice. so they're it's an indigenous surf club and mm-hmm. they're and then we met with this guy in the same episode who's like 77 years old his name's Billy Cook and he's a Mohawk and he races cars and it's one of the top dirt- race car drivers in the world at age 77 he's got like he's known (laughs) as the mohawk express that gives you an example of like the kind of shows we do we do really fun ways Mm -hmm. of doing it and uh it's 13 episodes uh broadcasting here and so in fact later today i'll be writing episode five of the second season so (laughs) i'll be i'm working on that one right now and then um I'm working on one on uh, coaching and athletes and safe sport like the dealing of it's back in track and field i'm dealing with a big issue about a coach in north america in canada is the winningest coach in university history who was kicked out of there's coaching for um allegedly having an uh, inappropriate affair with an athlete and so we're looking at that i'm looking at that right now so and then I'm pitching some other stuff out there too. Yeah. It's constant. I never stop. You know, yeah, you always have to you know. keep pitching a new idea. Yeah. yeah. And, uh,
0: it's Paul's big bet too, right?
1: Yeah. I'm working on something on the Bitcoin area too. I've got a big idea that I'm working on. It looks like it's kind of maybe go. I got to sell it though. So All right. I've got some Hopefully of the money that pays get off. It. Get it. Well, let's see. Yeah. If they pay me in Bitcoin, I'll be
0: okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the documentary <laughs> is called Nike's Big Bet. As he said, and as I said, it's on CBC Gem, if you're in Canada. Uh, Peacock, the longer version, if you're in America. And he mentioned some of the other markets. Where can people find you online to talk about uh, running, Bitcoin, going native, all the other kind of stuff you're into? Well, I'm just
1: at uh, Paul. You can go to my website and find me. I'm I'm on Twitter, at PaulCamp800. That's my my race, I used to race. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I used to run the 800 meters. That's sort of my, my handle. Uh, and then uh, I met, they can find me at my website, paulkempproductions.com. So you can see all my stuff's up there, all my films and some of the trailers, or they can go to my IMDb and check out all the stuff I've done over the years. So
0: Okay. So we covered quite a bit. We covered that you are literally a showrunner, uh, Both, <coughs> both words. Uh, the film is called Nike's Big Bet. And that uh, you like to kind of get into it and kind of explore uh, these kind of controversial figures, um, and yeah. to, to kind of get a better handle of them. That you're propelled by curiosity more than by yeah. verdict, if that's a good way to put it. That's
1: right. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't change your mind, then what are you doing this for? Like, if you if you can't change your mind, you might be right when you go in with a hunch, but you might be wrong. So you better you better keep that in the back of your mind because that film might take you in a totally different direction. That's that's actually the most exciting thing about making films sometimes. So That's
0: it. Oh, great. So we can end it there. That's a positive note. Thanks for uh, hanging out and uh, thanks for the documentary. Uh, I do like, you mentioned the 30 for 30 and I do like the fact that like we have this kind of explosion of like sports journalism. There are all yeah. these kind of stories that are happening. Um, you mentioned Lance yeah. Armstrong. I didn't know anything about Lance Armstrong. Obviously, I knew who he was and uh, Livestrong. Yes. I knew the kind of like headlines, but I watched the. I think it was a two-parter uh, for yep. uh, the Thirty for Thirty, and yeah. I didn't realize at the time, like you said, like everybody was cheating. <laughs> I thought though, <laughs> I thought the criticism was that he was cheating, like he was doping. But it turned out though, everybody no. in the sport was doping. So I was like, oh, like because I don't follow cycling at all. So this yeah. explosion of like sports journalism is great because you get to see all these stories and you get a little bit more context to what's like happening. Cause you just see headlines like Lance Armstrong's cheater. I'm like, okay, I don't know yeah. what that really, you know what I mean? And so now you can kind of get deeper into the stories and understand. And I like the fact that we have all these sports documentaries and sports journalism out there now.
1: Yeah. I like it as long as it doesn't have too much of that sort of feel of the, of the, uh, I feel like some of the films out there in the sports realm, are too, they're too like, Boosterish, if you know what I mean.
0: Like yeah. just, they just—they want to create the like, narrative, as
1: opposed to critical. Sometimes, like and I like—I loved uh ESPN's uh, "Once Upon a Time in Queens." Have you seen yeah,
0: that? Yeah, yeah, like, the uh, the Mets, the '80s Mets. Yeah, oh, four so I watched it twice. Yeah, four Barter is really great. And again, that I'm not a baseball guy, so that was not a story that I knew. But all those yeah. guys were characters, and just that New York City vibe, oh. and like it was. Yeah, it was a lot of fun.
1: When he, he chose, the director, I got to give him credit. Like he he chose to make New York as part of the character. Like, so every scene he's doing with the baseball, he's mixing it like there's a shooting on the subway or there's <laughs> something like this, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I thought it was a really creative way of doing it. And I, it was almost frenetic, actually, but in a weird way, that's what New York was in the 80s. And he tried to make that feel come through. And I think they just did a beautiful job on that film. And I loved, I loved it all. I watched it. I watched it. I don't know. I watched the first, I watched it right through and then I've gone back. And every time it's on TV, I turn it on. And yeah, I just yeah. watch it. I love it. I love the characters.
0: Yo, that was director Paul Kemp talking about his documentary Nike's Big Bet. I am Sammy, host of My Summer Lair. Oh, yo, these conversations, they give me a runner's high. Because there's no clear consensus on these individuals, I'm not willing to sacrifice nuance for the sake of a comfortable or even an easy narrative. Plus, I've read enough comic books to know that oftentimes, even the bad guys or supervillains don't always see themselves that way. Sometimes they're coming from a good place and truly just want to make things better. Granted, their methods or their execution could use work. You know, like, wrestling is fantastic because it's clear. You get a heel, you know he's the clear-cut bad guy, you know how to respond to a heel, the heel does exactly what a heel is supposed to do. It's a lot of fun and we all go home. I'm so grateful, so grateful real life is messy. And we have an opportunity to work through these issues. Not necessarily to arrive at a unique consensus or even a final verdict. Rather to know what we want and how to build an individual life. The life that we want to lead, as well as what kind of society we want to participate in. All of these issues are just Lego blocks. And you can build anything with Lego. Even after you're finished, it's all Lego. You can deconstruct it and build something new. Nothing is final. You keep working through it. In America, you can check out Nike's Big Bet on Peacock. It is 83 minutes. In Canada, the CBC Gem version is 44 minutes. So I guess streaming is also a big bet. While on Hoopla, you can enjoy The Rise of Jordan Pearson, the other doc Paul and I discussed. That's on Hoopla. Highly recommended documentary. Again, offering no cheap answers especially when it comes to somebody like Jordan Peterson. Thank you for that. Another classic exploration of do the ends justify the means is social media. (laughs) I'm on all three. My Summer Layer for IG, Facebook, and Twitter. If you watch Nike's Big Bet, share your thoughts. All three are My Summer Layer IG, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening to me in a Netflix world. Nike, yo.